I'm not interested in fine and I'm not interested in generic and um, I respect that those places um, need to exist but it, it certainly doesn't appeal to me and I, I don't think it would appeal really to many people going into hospitality um, because there are, there are easier ways to live than hospitality. You, you have to know why you're doing it. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. As we've seen during the series, the pandemic has given everyone a story to tell. Some good, some bad, some hopeful, some devastating. Amongst the heartbreak, it's given some the opportunity to restructure their business or start something new. It's also given rise to a greater sense of community. Chrissy Flanagan is the founder of Dully Locals and the owner of the sausage factory Sausage Queen Brewing, and is affably known as Sydney's Sausage Queen. Chrissy, how are you? I am super. Thank you for having me. That's um quite a <laughs> name to be known for. <laughs> can, can you tell us a bit about the history about that? Yes. So when I first started making sausages, I found out that the meat industry's um, sausage making competition was called and remains called um, Sausage King competition. And I thought, oh, <laughs> fuck that. <laughs> that's, that's a bit obnoxious, isn't it? So um, uh, I just thought, yeah, I might just make a bit of a point about that and uh, style myself as a sausage queen. And I thought it was, you know, hilarious. And then, but I also have um, sort of a gift where I'm, I'm, I'm deaf to double entendre, which has obviously made the last few years deeply amusing for everyone else. And, um, and I, it just rolls right off me because <laughs> I don't hear it. So, um, everyone has a really good time, um, at my expense slash with me and, um, everyone's, everyone's happy. So yes, I have until recently been in trademark dispute with, uh, Melbourne Sausage Queen, um, but we have, we have come to an agreement oh, wow. so we can recognize each other <laughs> as, you know, Queens of the North and South. Well. You've had a pretty non-typical pandemic experience for a hospitality professional because you you do have hospitality businesses, but you also work in the government. Can you can you tell us what it was like for you at the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, it uh, the f when it was coming, sort of um during February and then late February, early to mid March. There was something pretty interesting happening because we're a really small place at the sausage factory uh, and our normal normal world capacity in inverted commas um, is 35. So wow really, oh it's super intimate. It's, uh, wait until you hear how much more intimate it is now. Uh, so we were we had a little bit of a, a boom as much as 35 people can be a boom um, because there was a bit of a move away from the bigger venues um, and the CBDs early early on. Uh, and I, th I noticed people were kind of starting to stick to their neighborhood places a little bit more. So right up until about a week before the restaurants were actually closed by the government, we were packed. Uh, and and packed also with regulars who were starting to become hyper regular. So we were having people there sort of every week. Um, and I think a few elements of that, it was that people wanted that kind of trust. Uh, 
um, and the intimacy of knowing exactly who was running the place that they were going to, um, but also something sort of safe and familiar. So that was really interesting. Um, but then in, in that last week, uh, we went from being full um, the weekend before restaurants were shut down and then starting that Wednesday, Thursday, um, it was just an absolute desert. And we went, okay, I'd, like this is coming. Let's be responsible and... Um, we, we said early in the week that Friday was going to be our last night until whenever and, um, and, and shut down. And then on the Sunday, uh, the restaurants were officially closed. So it was a bit of a weird lead in, um, but we immediately pivoted to new things because um, it felt like it was essential. You're kind of an archetypal example of passion projects. You do many things, even though you'd also have a, have a job. What, What's it been like with the pandemic landing and and all of those passion projects that you have? How did you feel about them? Yeah, it's uh, in some ways it's caused a lot of people to do a bit of a stock take. Um, and my philosophy of the hospitality industry is that it's been shitty for like a long time. And I think a lot of restaurants have been marginal for years. Um, and you see um, incredible businesses um, that have, you know, amazing product and very high profile chefs. Um, Acme is always the first that comes to mind. Um, close. And then you go, fuck, if like, if, if Acme is closed, how is anywhere still open if somewhere with like all the critical regard and like, you know, closes. So that can be a bit confronting. Um, and I think that we as a hospitality industry have to now go, okay, this is an opportunity. Yes, this is incredibly awful, but this is an opportunity for us to reset our relationship with the dining public. And we need to, while people are paying attention to whether our businesses are viable or not, and that's only going to be like a heartbeat of time, uh, we need to work out a model that um, is more stable, um, that works more for us um, on an ongoing basis, yes, during the pandemic, but also how do we look forward, look ahead to how that's going to grow and change when we're allowed to have more people back. And I don't think the answer is to just go, all right, it's all over now, back to everything, because that wasn't working for the industry. And certainly it wasn't working for the sausage factory. Um, so what we've, what we've done when we, when we reopened, we went, okay, um, you know, we were open five nights a week. Um, Dulwich Hill is very much an area still in transition. It's incredibly hot. Do not get me wrong. Um, and I, it's an amazing, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm just always hyping Dulwich Hill. But that's just, that's just me. Um, Dulwich Hill is amazing, but we still, we don't have a lot of dinner venues. We need more to be forming sort of a cluster and a destination precinct feeling. Um, so really Friday and Saturday nights, are always strong. Um, Wednesday, Thursday, Sundays, up and down. So we just went, you know what? We're just going to open Friday and Saturdays. Um, and we've got a lot of other stuff going on. Um, at that time, we were still manufacturing as Chrissy's Cuts. Um, so we had sausages going out to 50 supermarkets every week. Uh, and we were ramping up um, Sausage Queen Brewing, our beer manufacturing. So we went, like, let's just do the two nights. And it means it means that we can run everything ourselves and really take back kind of control of the space and 
the venue and the feeling of being in there. So, and now we've gone like, well, this is fantastic. And the, the business model works better than it ever has. Wow. Um, yeah, which is very confronting. Um, but as my accountant likes to say, um, scale, <laughs> scale isn't a virtue in itself. Uh, it's only like it's margin. Margin is what makes you a profitable business or not a profitable business. And just doing more of something doesn't mean that people are going to buy that more that you, that you put out. So, um, and we've also done things like um, sittings and uh, everything is on a set menu. Um, so previously we were those people who wanted to be like, super chill and if you wanted to come and have uh, a glass of wine and a sausage sanger and sit there for four hours we were like no worries um, and now we're just like oh doesn't work for anyone so <laughs> this is this is the new model we do we do a 35 dollars per person um, set menu and then and we do bottomless booze for 32 dollars and People come for two hours um, and they have like the time of their fucking lives and then they go home and like they're happy, we're happy, uh, no one is served by anyone other than me. So they have a very intense sausage queen experience as well um, for good or bad. And, um, and then my partner Jim is running the kitchen and he comes out and tells them about all the sausages. So um, it's very much an extension of our living room. And that is something we couldn't do five nights a week, um, but we can do it two nights a week for hopefully the rest of our lives. Um, so this is a model that works for us and we'll carry it into the future, even though it you know, doesn't make sense for other places, it makes sense for us and everyone has to take control of their own model. You did mention about models during COVID and then whether or not they would work beyond and the need for new restaurant models. Do you, do you think that this model that you have will stay tight post-COVID? Uh, I think it will. Um, it's also really focused um, the, the people who come because uh, we have, yeah, and, and still um, as it was becoming right before COVID and um it's a very intense um, crowd, like people who are coming uh, fortnightly, sort of even on, on average, there'd be 10 couples, I'd say, who, who come on a fortnightly basis and just bring different friends. Uh, and one of my favourite things the other night, uh, one of our regular architects, I heard telling her friends that this is her place. And um, nothing could make me happier than people feeling a sense of ownership uh, over something that you love and have put um, all your energy and, and time into making, you know, to refining. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's going to work because we don't need a million people to get it um, and enjoy it and think it's a, a good idea. Um, we just need a, a small crowd and for them to tell a few of their friends um, and then you know <laughs> we're full so at the moment um, we're, we're doing sort of about um, 12 to 16 people in each uh, two-hour sitting and uh, yeah that's the law so but that 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 works for us and we can handle it how did it all start with sausages oh so um, I was 
uh, consulting, doing what I do for the government now, which is um, sort of communications and engagement consulting. So I help the government explain their ideas and, you know, infrastructure and programs and things. Um, so I was doing on that on a consultant basis, um, having just left the public service. And I was sort of, you know, sometimes you're busy, sometimes it's quiet. Um, but I was also desperately, desperately lonely because I was working from home and I would go to the local supermarket and I was just best friends with everyone who worked there because those were the only people I saw in the day other than my partner. So um, I was very much in need of something um, to give myself just a little bit more purpose and fell into having absolutely no food background, did not grow up in a food family. Um, my partner, Jim, is a beautiful cook and his family is very food oriented but um I'd, I'd never really been interested before Jim um but had become then interested in the the produce not so much cooking but the produce so started making cheese and um curing hams in the shower and um fermenting all that sort of thing that all that's cottage core thing that people go through and um eventually made sausages and we had a party and um, cooked them at a party and and I thought why do these sausages, why are they just unrecognisable from sort of Australian sausages that you normally get in supermarkets? And I realised um, that it was the absence of lips, eyeballs, assholes, um, and <laughs> literally, and um, the artificial preservatives and all the fillers, um, and that sausages don't have just a generic sausage taste they can and should, I would argue, taste like the things they're made from. Um, and they're just an amazing vehicle for flavour in exactly the same way that beer is. There shouldn't just be a beer taste. There isn't a beer taste. taste beer should taste like a thousand things and sausages should taste like a thousand things. So, um, and then I went, oh yeah, it's this pork shoulder I'm using. And then I think the first, one of the first sausages we did for that party was a pork bacon maple. And that became the first sausage that we, we did in supermarkets and also for beer festivals, um, such that I cannot eat it anymore um, because I spent, <laughs> spent too many hours smelling like a pork bacon maple sausage and being chased by dogs and having my ankles licked by dogs in the street because I sm smelled like pork bacon and maple. So, yes, that was basically the revelation. I went, oh, there's got to be a market for sausages made from food like Australians love sausages but like you know you can't think for a second about what is in them or it will be disgusting surely there is a market for a not disgusting sausage and and, and well so that was that was kind of the rationale part of it but then personally like I just needed to build something and it gave me like it's it's completely obviously transformed my life and is I think the most the single most important decision I've made in my whole life to start a ridiculous sausage business completely out of my depth um, yeah it's been very very transformative well you just said it was the most important decision of your life that you've made but during the series I noticed on Instagram that you had all sorts of advice and you were put, posting videos about starting a business now that something you'd always wanted to do and you also talked about running a business while working in another job and, and the benefits of that. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm a, a massive fan of um, starting a business as just a way to kind of take 
control of of your life um, because it's it's terribly fulfilling to to build something from scratch um, and there's I've I've not encountered um, in in having kind of a job and a traditional sort of career the same satisfaction like yes it's great to like get a job and then you know you do well in your job but it's it's not as kind of um, life on the line adrenaline live and die by um, are people buying your product that you and you have made every decision that has gone into it and if it fails it's you and if it succeeds it's you um, at, the, at which point I should acknowledge that Jim is also extremely instrumental <laughs> Uh, but it's but it's just exhilarating um but what I like about combining starting a business and especially your first business with having a job is you've got all the safety net of um, an income and it's fiendish fiendishly hard to start a business particularly a business that has a physical product uh, just with any amount of money really because there's a lot there's a lot of things that cost a lot of money before you get a product that you can then sell to people and even then you have to have stock of that product um, you have to have somewhere that you can legally store it um, and you have to distribute it and in a food business that is very very expensive and things you know are constantly aging out um, it's, it's like it's bad enough if you've got a shelf-stable product, um, but in a food business, that's just very high risk. So if you have a job as well, then you have that buffer of it's hard to fuck up so badly that you're just out of business. Um, but without that, I don't like I don't know how people do it unless they have a background. Unless you've like you previously you've had a job working in the industry doing these things and you know how all the system works but if you're coming to it as a rank amateur as I did um, completely new industry all the regulation completely new to you um, and the production everything news then then having just that financial buffer is amazing um, but I also um, and strongly have a belief that it makes you better at your job as well like I had a lot of um, just in the end untapped energy that I needed to channel somewhere. Um, back back like 15 years ago, I was a political staffer, which worked for me because I worked um, from 4am until whenever the phone stopped ringing. Um, and sometimes during the night, because someone had been hit by a train, I would be called. Um, so like a very all absorbing job. Um, and when you then like that, but that, you know, you can't do that sort of thing for life because it will burn you out. But then there's not enough pressure. I'm, I feel like I'm sounding extremely dysfunctional, but, but, <laughs> but I really it's was confronted. I think. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah. If, if you're a hospitality person, you, you have to, you have to have, or it's not going to work, uh, just a ton of energy um, and a real ambition to create something incredible. Like if you're just a bit half-assed about hospitality, it's just not going to work because people can feel half-assedness. Like 
yes, there are places that are completely, you know, just fine and generic and down the road. And they work because it's just like it's fine and people are only looking for fine. But I'm not interested in fine and I'm not interested in generic and um, I respect that those places um, need to exist but it, it certainly doesn't appeal to me and I, I don't think it would appeal really to many people going into hospitality um, because there are there are easier ways to live than hospitality. You, you have to know why you're doing it. You're very proud of Dulwich Hill and you, you spoke of it only, only moments ago but it drove you to start Dully Locals. Can you tell us about what that was originally and how the uh, pandemic has affected it? Yeah, uh, so I started it, it's, it's been kind of at the back of my mind since um, we moved to Dulwich Hill, um, what about four years ago, because Dulwich Hill has a really emerging and slowly booming artisan producer scene um, that I'm very proud of. And I'm, I'm a huge advocate just of telling people what is in Dulwich Hill. And anyone who comes into the sausage factory hears about kombu kombucha down the road and baked by Kieran around the corner and drunken sailor jams. And I just am very excited about telling people the incredible things that are in the neighborhood. Um, so I, I, I had a rule that I wasn't going to start any more organizations, um, but then, which is which is a solid rule. I liked that rule, but I just it got out of control. So the council um, the council asked me if I would uh, curate a stage at Dulwich Hill Fair last year, and I went well. I'm probably going to have to actually start Dully Locals because, you know, what's the point of just doing a one day thing? Let's let's create an entire sort of local movement around it and use it to promote local businesses. So then, yeah, set up Dully Locals and started um, promoting local businesses. And so we had we had the fair and we had um, incredible presentations. And um, Rosa from the Tamaleria um, brought a brought a, a Mexican band to her presentation. Like it was incredible, and we really overscoped the entire day. But that's you know how how we all like to do things. Um, and then after that, I went okay. Um, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going. I'll just kind of keep Delhi Locals ticking over for a bit while I work out exactly what I want to do with it on an ongoing basis. And was talking to council about potentially doing some other stuff in the future, but it was just kind of sitting there. And um, then early, early, um, early January, I just, everything became a bit sort of too much with having five businesses and a job. And I had a little, no, I mean, I had no, I just shouldn't diminish. I had an emotional breakdown, which was my, my first remarkably when you think about the stupid decisions I make and, um, and had a bit of a reassessment and went, okay, well, what's really important in, in all the things, clearly I need to cut out some, some of these things. And at that time I was also making a podcast, um, which I was very much enjoying and learning all those technical things um, and doing like I was, I was knitting knitting large swathes of knitting and then nailing nail gunning it to telegraph poles around Dulwich Hill and I went okay some okay some of these things are gonna go um and Dulwich Hill <laughs> Dulli, Dulli locals was like on the very much at risk list um but I council called me like really right then and said oh I think we should do some stuff and give you some grants and what do you want to do and what can we fund I went oh okay you made it, Dully Locals. Uh, and then not too, not too long after that, um, 
uh, so mid-March then, um, when I was talking to councils about what we would do, you know, maybe a newsletter with some grant money or some other, like an incubator, and things started to hit, places closing down, and a lot of those amazing artisan producers in Dulwich Hill, they, they don't have or didn't have at the time any retail distribution at all. It was all wholesale. So I went, oh, oh, you're fucked immediately. Like you, they, they went from having a booming business to nothing the next week because when the restaurant shut, um, all of their customers just went away. So, and also in the last few days that um, the sausage factory was open, people were saying to me, um, you have to work out how we can still get your product. We're really worried about how we're going to support local businesses if we can't leave our house. How can we, but we, how can we keep you alive? And if you're not open, what can we do? What are we going to do? We're like, what's going to happen to the business community? And people really, really quickly got that um, their business community was part of their community and that their community was their responsibility. And I found that incredibly heartening. Um, so I sort of thought, well, you know, this is my community as well. I live 30 seconds from the sausage factory. So I think it's important to be able to run to your restaurant uh, that's my my principle of where we can where we can rent is running distance, <laughs> and I'm not fit, so you know that can't be far. Uh, so I thought, okay, something's going to have to happen, and I thought, oh look, I've already got this very convenient not for profit structure uh, in Delhi locals. Let's turn that into an e commerce site. So um, after the I shut the restaurant, um, I then spent the next four days. Um, emailing uh, every producer in Dulwich Hill and saying, okay, by in a week, we're going to have an e-commerce platform live. Drop me off um, samples of your products. Um, and I, I built the website. We had a photo shoot and then, wow. yeah, yeah, it was pretty, um, I do like a challenge. And I think it was the Wednesday, <laughs> <laughs> the Wednesday, um, we launched the Dully Locals website uh, after having closed on the Friday. And we did $5,000 of sales in the first five days and then 20000 in the first two months. Um, and it's still, you know, clicking along. Yeah, so I was pretty, from a standing start, I was pretty proud of that. But the, it's, it was because there was such a keen appetite for that. Um, people with jobs, and I was one of those people with jobs, um, that they felt were secure were like, well, what am I going to do to support these businesses? And I ran into a senior public servant in the street and he said he and his wife and their three kids were having three takeaway meals from Dulwich Hill businesses a day because they were just like, how can we ram money <laughs> into the business? Because he and his wife were both on very good incomes and they were like, it is our job to spend as much money as possible immediately where we live uh so yeah i think that's that's what i attribute to the success of dully locals everyone just being very very ripe for it um so yeah so that kind of ticked over and then when things um started to reopen and i had this conversation with um claire at bloodwood because 
Bloodwood takeaway as well was absolutely huge. And people were kind of going like, okay, well, this is fine. We'll just, we'll do both. Like, we'll continue to do like the deli locals and the home delivery and, and, and we'll have this other income stream of the like sales in person. Um, but there was a very stark just tick over. People went like, oh, restaurants are open now. Everyone's fine. There's like, I, I am under no further obligation to proactively support local businesses. So I think it has definitely gone off the boil a little bit and people have really noticed it. But, you know, it's, it's raised awareness. It's a matter of how much people continue to act on that. If they're going to, and particularly thinking of office workers, if they're going to be in their community 24 hours a day purely because people work at home now and for whatever period of time they're going to be, there's also now just amenity to getting lunch down the road. You know, you're not going to go into a CBD to get lunch, unfortunately, for the businesses that are in the CBD. So if you live in a highly residential area, then you're being supported now, not through a sense of responsibility necessarily, but like that's where the food is. So yeah, things things are just shifting week by week, really. It's a fascinating study and I, I don't know where we'll be at Christmas, um, but we, you know, we'll just keep pivoting. You certainly love a challenge, but how have you felt during this period? I mean, manic, obviously, but, but it, but the, it's so immediate, like the, the, it really focuses the mind because our, like action can't kind of wait um, so with starting Delhi Locals that's why I, I I ramped that website up so quickly because people were going to be having trouble paying their rent um, the next week and some people were having product shipped back to them so they weren't even going to have the invoices that they had out being paid and that that product was just going to expire so um, something had to happen extremely suddenly and there wasn't a sense that we could kind of wait for every like the government and everyone's landlords to sort it out for us that it was on us to make our own solutions so that had to happen quickly but um i've i've largely felt i mean guilt at having a job because it's very confronting to be part of the hospitality industry and um see what difficult decisions people are having to make and we were sort of lucky in some ways with staff in that we were in a transition period with staff so we weren't letting we didn't have to make those really awful decisions of letting go um, any long-term staff uh, and we managed to keep our one long-term staff member who's on a visa so had no other options other than leaving the country uh, we he became our sausage our deli locals delivery driver then um, and yeah, so we was kind of spared some of a lot of the, the grief that a lot of the industry, um, had to experience because we had this kind of, um, safety net. Um, although of course we do have to like work for those jobs, which is an awful lot of time <laughs> and energy as well. But anyway, we had, we had circumstances where we had, we had a backup, um, but then, in that in that space of not having the the restaurant open um you know five nights a week uh, there was more time to think about well what is working what isn't working uh and we we decided that the sausage retail the sausages in the supermarkets chrissy's cuts 
um, wasn't scaling the way we thought it had and it had had four years and um, we were going to wrap that up. Um, so went through a process of negotiating with a few companies to um, sell the brand that ultimately fell through and then um, I think about two and a half, oh no, about a month ago now, um, we announced we were going to stop making Chrissy's cuts and uh, yeah, which was very hard and confronting because it was my, um, it was the first baby and everything else has sort of come out of that. The Sausage Factory came out of Chrissy's Cuts and then Sausage Queen Brewing came out of the Sausage Factory and um, uh, it felt very tied up in kind of the central identity of everything. Like in this whole knot couldn't be unpicked and no one piece could be taken out. Um, but I, I worked out, you know, the thing that I am the most excited about is, is the, the bar and the beer. Um, so those, I, sh I need to put my energy into those things. So it's been a relief in some ways to be sort of forced into making difficult decisions. Um, and I also, it's been a relief to make difficult decisions about the sausage factory because it felt, it didn't feel, um, like it was entirely ours anymore. Um, because it just got a bit, you know, away from us in the way when things kind of roll on and everything's fine for a few years, you're not, you're not completely revisiting all the time. Like, is this working? Is it what we want it to be? Um, but when, when something stops, you go, well, are we going to put all of it back? Um, yeah, so it's, it's a very strange time and I don't exactly know how I feel, but I think I'm making good decisions and that's more important than feeling a particular way to me. As someone that uh, communicates on behalf of the government and works in hospitality, how do you see the roadmap moving forward for the hospitality sector? Yeah, uh, it's a very, very interesting question. And I'm, I'm on Inner West Council's um, Economic Recovery Task Force as well, which has local business people from all sectors um, talking about this exact problem. And um, I, think, I think that it's good. This, this gives the government a window that, um, and speaking from personal opinion and I'm, I'm not an all in any way a decision maker. Um, I, I believe that the government is going to embrace this opportunity to improve um, life for both residents and businesses um, because there, there are opportunities to, to try things because people are more open to change when change is happening anyway. So things like um, closing down streets uh, at particular times to have outdoor seating like that is that is fantastic anytime but that would be a very hard sell in normal times because um, a lot of people a lot of very outspoken people are very resistant to change and so, you know, but you can try things because things can very clearly be justified. Now you go, well, you don't want those businesses to close, do you? No. So we're just going to give this a shot, okay? And if it works, that's fantastic. If it doesn't work, that's totally fine. But I think we've seen a lot of things like the government um, letting restaurants uh, sell their alcohol under a restaurant license to take away and even do delivery like there has not been a spike in one punch 
you know, one punch injuries since that has happened. People aren't like drinking and drunk on the streets. Um, it's, it's fine. And I personally think it would be fantastic if things like that continued. Um, and I say that as someone who has a wholesale producer's license now. So that means there's more competition for me in other restaurants being able to do that. But I think competition is how you get, um, you know, the best result for everyone and welcome competition. So anything that can be done to give businesses more opportunity uh, faster planning approval so um, that it's easier to start a business. Uh, there are a lot of opportunities and I believe the wheels are turning such that um, business and the community will be in a better position in the midterm for as, as regards sort of their local businesses. Well, Chrissy, you are known as the Sydney Sausage Queen, but perhaps you should be known as the Queen of Dully from now on. <laughs> We've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds. Um, um, please keep in touch and um, love to hear what happens moving forward as uh, we get out of COVID. Thank you. I'd love to see you. This has been very fun. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospital community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.